turn to John chapter 4. John, the fourth chapter, as we continue looking at the Gospel of John. Come to a well-known passage, I believe, uh, here with this account of the Lord Jesus Christ with the woman at the well. One of the wonderful things about the good news that Jesus brings is that it meets the basic need that all people have. You can go to the highest halls of learning. You can talk with a man with multiple PhDs. And although he's highly educated, the message he needs to hear is that Christ died for his sins and was raised from the dead and that he can trust in Christ and receive eternal life as a free gift. Take that message to the most primitive, illiterate tribesman in some remote jungle, and he needs to hear the same good news. And since all people are sinners who need to be reconciled to a holy God, the same gospel applies to all. Jesus saves sinners who trust in Him. Now John chapter 3 gives us the account of Jesus' interview with the Pharisee Nicodemus. As a religious leader and a moral man, he was no doubt shocked by Jesus' opening words in chapter 3, verse 3, where he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus's religion was not sufficient. He needed a new birth. John chapter 4 gives the account of a, an encounter that Jesus had with an immoral Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Uh, Jesus skillfully shows her that she needs the living water that he can uh, give. And it's basically the same message with a little bit different metaphor or picture here. Nicodemus and the unnamed Samaritan woman are as different as they can be. He was a Jewish man. She was a Samaritan woman. He was educated and orthodox in his Jewish faith. She was uneducated and heterodox. Uh, he was an influential leader. She was a nobody. He was an upper class, upper, upper middle class. She was lower class. He was morally upright. She was immoral. Uh, he thought out or sought out Jesus because he recognized his merits. She had no idea who the stranger at the well was who sought her out. And he came to Jesus at night and, uh, Jesus and this woman, Samaritan woman, met at noon. Nicodemus responded slowly and rationally. She responds quickly and emotionally. But Jesus loved both of them. He came to seek and to save all types of people. And so here in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, we learn that Jesus is the Savior who can give living water to all thirsty sinners. Now just a little bit of background here. In the first three verses, John gives us the reason why Jesus left Judea and headed toward Galilee, namely to avoid the conflict with the, with the Pharisees. They were closely monitoring the ministries of both John and uh, Jesus, John the Baptist that is. And Jesus was never one to avoid conflict if it was his father's will, but he knew that the time was not yet right for that direct conflict, so he left. Uh, the word left there is a word that means abandon. Uh, Judea, he left Judea in the south and headed north, 
north toward Galilee and he, until he knew that his hour for the cross would come. Now John chapter 4 verse 2 clarifies that Jesus was not actually baptizing people, but his disciples were. And this baptize, uh, baptism was based on repentance for the give, forgiveness of sin as practiced by John the Baptist. And by baptizing, he attested the unity of his work with that of the forerunner, John the Baptist. And by not himself baptizing, he made the superiority of his position above that of John the Baptist to be felt. But perhaps Jesus knew that if he actually did the baptizing, people would later boast, well, I was baptized by Jesus himself. And so he let his disciples do the actual immersing uh, of people at that time. But we then go on into verses 4 through 14, and we find three main lessons. The first lesson is the seeking of sinners. Verse 4 says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now, this was the shortest route from Judea to Galilee that many Jews used, but it wasn't the only route. Some strict Jews didn't want any contact with the despised Samaritans. They would take a longer route, crossing the Jordan River to the east, traveling north, and then come back west into Galilee. And since Jesus was probably already at the Jordan River, where they were baptizing, he could have taken that route, but he didn't. So the word translated must needs probably indicates more of a geographic necessity. But Jesus had a divine appointment in Samaria. In verses 5 and 6, we see here it says, Then cometh he to this city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Sychar was located about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, approximately halfway between Jerusalem and Nazareth at the base of Mount Gerizim the Samaritan's holy mountain, and Jacob's well was about a half a mile outside the village. John mentions that Jesus was weary on his journey, so he was sitting by the well at about the sixth hour. Now the disciples had gone into the city to buy food, uh, the distance from where Jesus had been baptizing uh, to Sychar, Sychar was about 40 miles by road. Jesus and his disciples had walked a full day and a half to arrive there about noon. That's like walking from here to Shatek. You want to try that next time, Nathaniel? We'd walk instead of drive, okay? Uh, uh, we wouldn't get any work done if we got there then. We'd have to stay the night and work the next day, and it'd take a whole another day to get back. But uh, 40 miles is about what they walked there. But the hostilities between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, went back centuries. After the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, they deported most of the Jews and replaced them with foreigners who intermarried with the remaining Jews. And their religion was a mixture of their foreign gods with Judaism. And when the exiles from the southern kingdom of Judah returned from Babylon, the Samaritans offered to help them rebuild their temple. But the Jews viewed them as foreign enemies and refused their offer. And the same thing happened later when Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And then about 400 B.C., the Samaritans built a rival temple at Mount Gerizim, and the Jewish leader, John Hurricanus, uh, burned it down in 128 B.C., which didn't improve relationships. Now, when you burn somebody's temple down, that's not going to be uh, put you on friendly basis there. But the Samaritans um, uh, 
had this division between the Jews. And then also the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, uh, not all of the Jewish scriptures. So the Jews viewed the Samaritans as biological and religious half-breeds. And all these events and all these factors were so uh, led to so uh, intense a hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews by Jesus' day. And we can't properly understand this story unless we keep some of this hostile history in mind. That's why I gave you that history lesson. So the normal time, though, as we come to this well here, the normal time for the women to get water was early, uh, early, early, either early morning or later in the afternoon. Uh, it was cooler in those times of the day, early morning, later afternoon. And the well was a place where the women would sometimes gather to talk. Uh, they would fill their water pots there. And we can't say for sure why this woman came to the well at noon, but it may be that because of her immoral life, she was not liked by the other women. Uh, she wanted to come when she would be alone. But then she encounters this Jewish man. And this Jewish man has the audacity to ask her for a drink of water. Remember these hostile relationships between the Samaritans and the Jews. And it would kind of be like uh, uh, a white man in the South years ago where they had separate drinking fountains for the whites and the coloreds, as they called them. It would be like a white man asking a black woman if he could have a drink from her canteen or her cup. And add to this that it wasn't socially accepted for a Jewish man, much less a rabbi, to speak to any woman in public. The rabbis thought even Jewish women should not be taught the scriptures. So for Jesus to go uh, beyond asking for a drink was a shocking thing. And it was a direct conversation into spiritual things with this Samaritan woman that was really uh, off the chart, so to speak. And it wasn't that this woman said, Sir, you look like a Jewish rabbi. I'm hungry to know your God. Can you tell me something about that? That's not what happened. She was just going about her daily chores, minding her own business, when this stranger asked her for a drink and then steers the conversation to spiritual matters. She wasn't seeking to know God. And I sang the song, uh, about the woman at the well seeking. She wasn't seeking God. She was seeking pleasures from this world. She wasn't seeking God. Her guilt over her current live-in boyfriend and her five marriages, which had probably ended because of her multiple adulteries, caused her to keep her distance from God. The only explanation for this story is that Jesus was seeking a sinner who wasn't even seeking him. And so the application for those of us who know Christ is this. If you want to be like our Savior, we should be seeking out unlikely candidates for salvation and try to turn the conversation to spiritual matters so that they too can come to know the Savior. Now, all too often we size a person up they seem like they're far from the Lord, and we think, well, they wouldn't be interested in spiritual things. 
so we don't attempt to steer the conversation to a place where we can tell them the good news. But maybe I'm speaking to someone who has a notoriously sinful past and right now is living in sin. But the application for you is that Jesus seeks after just such people as you to be his disciples. Jesus said in Luke 19 and verse 10 that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He saved the thief on the cross. He saved the chief of sinners who was persecuting the church, the apostle Paul. He saved the immoral Samaritan woman and he wants to save you this morning if you're lost in your sins. Secondly, the offer, we notice the offer to all sinners. I think there are three things here as we come to this account, beginning in verse 10, really. First of all is the gift of living water. Verse 10, if you, it says, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Then down in verse 14 it says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. It is a gift. It's not a reward. One of the most common spiritual errors is that we get to heaven by our good works. Every religion except biblical Christianity operates on the principle that you must work or earn your salvation. That's the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the Councils of Trent, where it says, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious, the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtaining the grace of justification, let him be anathema. That's what is believed, and this is what has been printed in the councils of Trent. Now, in total contrast, the Bible states in Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, Now to him that worketh, is the reward of not reckoning of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that, it, that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And of course, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what the Bible says. And that's what we believe. The gospel is not good news if it requires you to do some penance, if it requires you to reform your life, if it requires you to keep a bunch of rules, if it requires you to do an unspecified number of good deeds, and then hope that someday God just might, just might let you in heaven on that basis. That's not good news. But the wonderful good news is that God offers to you a free gift. He says it right here in our text. If thou knewest the gift of God. And so we have the gift here. Maybe you're thinking, because of my sins, which I'm, I'd be embarrassed to make known, I'm not worthy of such a gift. True. You're not worthy. No one is. But notice, secondly, 
No sinner is excluded. In the eyes of most Jews, including the disciples at this point, this woman was not worthy of Jesus' time. Just being a Samaritan would exclude her. Being a woman was strike two. But being an immoral Samaritan woman, she would have been out of there. Three strikes and you're out. Jesus, why don't we just move on to more important, better qualified people who have more potential? No. Jesus took the time and the initiative to talk with this sinful woman about living water. He didn't exclude her from offering her this gift. He doesn't exclude anyone here this morning either. Actually, it's often good religious people who exclude themselves from receiving this gift. Because good religious people are proud of their accomplishments. They want some reward for what they've done. They don't want to associate with people like this sinful woman, or they don't want to admit that they need living water from Jesus just as much as she did. But the gift is freely offered to notorious sinners and to self-righteous Religious sinners as well. Both equally need the gift. But then notice thirdly, the gift that satisfies. The gift of living water that Jesus offers satisfies the thirsty soul for time and eternity. Jesus tells this woman, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Of course, by living water, Jesus referring to the eternal life that the Holy Spirit gives Jesus said in John 7, 37, In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and uh, come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath saith, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit. Living water is the same thing as the new birth, but just a little bit different analogy here. In the hot Desert climate, water was essential for life. It was always welcome. It was always refreshing. Living water referred to water that was flowing from a spring or from a fountain as opposed to that was kind of collected in a cistern or in a a pool. Jews were familiar with scriptures that Uh, The scriptures that uh, knew that the Lord himself is a spiritual fountain of living water. Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord rebukes sinning people. He said, therefore, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Or in Jeremiah 17 and verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they shall depart from me, shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So Jesus told this woman that the water that he would give would be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That little phrase, in him, shows that true Christianity is not primarily a matter of rituals and ceremonies, but rather an inward personal relationship with a living God. It must be in each person's heart. 
The picture of this living water springing up points to the continual source of life that the indwelling Spirit supplies to believers. It's active. It's always flowing. There are times of greater or lesser flow, but it never dries up, as so many rivers do, especially in the drier parts of our country. I've lived in some of those drier parts of the country. You know, some rivers around here, they just seem like they keep flowing forever. But you go to some of the southwestern states, some of you have lived there. Even in Kansas, sometimes the rivers dry up. But this is a river that will never dry up. When Jesus says that whosoever drinketh of that water that I shall give him shall never thirst He means that we who have drunk this living water are satisfied with Him in the sense that we know that He has rescued us from sin and judgment. He has given us eternal life and that nothing can separate us from His love. We're His children under His loving care in every situation. He's given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have His Word, which is like water for our soul. Jesus does not mean that our thirst is forever quenched in a sense that we cease to long for it and we cease to have more of Him. We still hunger and thirst after righteousness, according to Matthew 5, 6. Our hearts still pant after God like a thirsty deer for the water, at the water brook, Psalm 42, 1. And we still pray. It says in Psalm 63, 1, O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee, My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And although we thirst throughout our whole life, yet it is certain that we have not received the Holy Spirit for just a single day or for a short period, but it's a perennial fountain which will never fail us. So how do we get this living water of salvation that Jesus offers to all? That brings us to the receiving of the gift. To receive this gift of living water, you must know who Jesus is, what He offers, and you must ask for it. Verse 10, look at that again. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of Him, and He would have given thee living water. These words have, uh, would have provoked her curiosity about three things. What is the gift of God? Who is it that's talking to me? Maybe I should ask him for living water. And so you first need to know what it is. We've already seen that the gift of living water is salvation that the Holy Spirit imparts. It's the Lord himself dwelling in believers. Now to Nicodemus, Jesus spoke about being born of the Spirit. At the Feast of Tabernacles, he invited the crowds to come to him and drink, which John explains was a reference to the Spirit. Here he invites the sinful woman to ask him to give her this living water that will forever quench her spiritual thirst. And again, it's important to know that salvation is not a matter of keeping rules and rituals, but rather of new life through the Spirit, which brings us into a relationship with the living God. And it's important to know as Jesus emphasized, that it is a gift. It is a gift. And then to receive this gift, you must also know who Jesus is. The woman needed to know something about this one who claimed that he could give her living water. 
And this underscores the fact that faith is not just a blind leap into the dark. Faith is only as good as its object. To have faith in an airplane, you need to know that it has flown recently and it is trustworthy. To have faith in Christ, you need to know something about who he is. This doesn't require a seminary degree, but does require some basic information. Here in this story, you need to know that Jesus is a human. He didn't perform a miracle to quench his thirst. He could have, right? He could have said, he could have gotten his own water. He could have just had the water come up to him and he could have drank it. As a man, he can sympathize, though, with our weaknesses. It says that he was weary. He asked this woman for a drink, and by being willing to drink out of her container, uh, she was he was putting herself on her level. He didn't make her feel like he was superior to her as a Jew. He didn't put her down as a woman, as many Jewish men would have done. Uh, he came across to her as he truly was a tired, thirsty man. We see Jesus here being human. But we also see Jesus is God. The woman asked in verse 11 how Jesus would get this living water out of the well since it was so deep. Uh, If you study the wells that were dug at that time, they were probably over 100 foot deep. And then he had nothing to draw the, uh, the water out with. And then so she challenged him in verse 12. Art thou greater than our father Jacob? And the answer, of course, is yes. He was much greater than Jacob. Uh, He is probably the angel of God that wrestled all night with Jacob. The answer to where he could get the living water is he has it within his own divine nature to supply it to as many sinners as ask for it. He He has an endless supply of grace. And that is for all. And finally, to receive this gift, you don't only need to know what it is and who Jesus is, but you need to ask for it. Jesus said there, Give me to drink. Thou wouldst have asked him, and he would have given living water. To ask, you have to recognize that you're thirsty and that you can never uh, satisfy that thirst by yourself. But if you come to Jesus and you ask, he will give it. All you have to do is drink and drink of him until you're satisfied. But the only condition that Jesus asks or states is ask. If you ask, he will give you the endless supply. Now, in recent years, we've heard much about seeker-friendly churches. The basic premise in a seeker-sensitive movement is that there are many people out there who are seeking God and they want to know him. But the concept of a traditional church, that scares them away from faith in Christ. And it is true that there are millions of people out there who are seeking. But the question is, are they seeking God? Is it true that people are truly seeking God? Actually, the scriptures tell us exactly the opposite. Paul tells us that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. This means there is no such thing as an unbeliever who's truly seeking God on his own. 
You see, man is dead in his sin, according to Ephesians 2.1. He cannot seek God because he doesn't recognize the need for him, which is why Paul says there is no one that understands. And Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 to 23 teaches us that all unbelievers reject the true God. Then they go on to form a God that is what they want. A God in their image, in the image of something else. And this is a God that they can tame, they can control. Romans 1 says that they knowingly suppress what they know about God through through his creation, and that they are subject to God's wrath, another doctrine avoided by these seeker churches. So the idea of thousands or even millions of unbelievers really searching for a true God is an unbiblical notion. And this movement is based on an unbiblical concept of nature of the unsaved person, person who's spiritually dead. A spiritual person does not seek God. Spiritually dead person does not seek God, nor can he. Therefore, there's no such thing as a seeking unbeliever. He does not understand the things of God. This woman at this well was not seeking God. As I sang moments ago, she was seeking for things that could not satisfy. She had five husbands, and she has probably living with another one, another boyfriend. And she was trying to seek pleasure from this world. But there is such a thing as a Savior who is seeking the lost. Again, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jesus sought out this woman at the well and offered her a gift of living water eternal life. Now I would certainly hope our church would not be considered a seeker-sensitive church, but I hope we could use the term someone has used to call ourselves a savior-sensitive church. We're not here to offer you entertainment, ritual, feel-good activities. Our responsibility is to faithfully preach and teach the Word of God, which includes the Gospel. And we offer this to you today in this message from John chapter 4. A gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So, have you asked Jesus Christ for the living water of eternal life? Do you have the evidence of being satisfied with Jesus You can continually drink from the world's sources, but you'll thirst again, according to verse 13 here. But one drink from Jesus, and you'll never thirst again. And if you've received that gift of living water, my question is this morning, are you sharing it with others? Are you sharing that wonderful gift, that life-giving water with others that you come in contact with? Let's pray. Father in heaven,